Hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast Decolonizing University. This episode is the second episode on the subject of the decolonization of the workforce. My name is Fien Powels and in today's episode I will talk to Professor Jan Orbi and Professor Sami Zemni from Ghent University. In the previous episodes we talked about how it was very hard to find speakers that are willing to talk about this subject. Therefore, I really would like to thank the speakers of this episode again for being willing to talk about the subject and for making time for me to talk about it. To start of this episode, we will begin with an interview with Jan Orbi. He is an associate professor at the Department of Political Sciences at the UGent, uh, more specifically EU studies. Next, there will be an interview with Sami Zemni, who is also a professor at Ghent University. In addition, he is also the head of the Department Conflict and Development and is also a member on, of the Learning Network on Decolonization. In the conversation with Professor Zemni, we talk about the current diversity situation at his faculty. Furthermore, we also go in deeper on the current structures in place to increase this diversity within his department. After that, we talk about affirmative action and its effects. And then to conclude this episode, we'll go over the future of decolonization and the workforce and how he thinks this might be attained. So, with that said, let's begin with the interview with Professor Orbi. So, welcome in this podcast, Decolonizing HR. So, let's begin with the first question. Do you think that a diverse academic staff is a requirement for a decolonial university? Yes, I think it's uh, it's certainly the case. I think that's quite obvious. But first of all, I should perhaps say I'm I'm not an HR expert. I'm not. Uh, I also don't do any research on HR uh, policies. I also don't have any formal responsibilities in that regard. But I am a member of the diversity committee and also of the decolonization network. And as a as a professor, also a previous director of a research group, I have a little bit of experience with with hiring and the procedures around it but but apart from that I'm not the expert on the topic but I think that you don't have to be an expert to realize that diversity is indeed important not not just because it's a value in itself but also because it brings more dynamics and more creativity in a group but also because it represents society uh, better what we now see is that academia at, at least the environment where I work is is not a representation of society mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So, oftentimes, people of color have different um, assets or different talents that are not taken into consideration in the current hiring process. Life experiences is definitely a a big one that can be an asset within such a a system as a university where where there's a lot of interaction with other people, social interaction and the upbringing of of students. Um, How do you think that we can you know, really look at these experiences as an asset, because I, I, I might assume that that's not something that's taken into account when you hire a new professor or doctoral student or, or anything. Right, I see. Yes, I think there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of insight that come from experiences that are not valued or that are not considered in academia in general and then also when when hiring people. And, uh, you know, if you study society, I think it can be very useful to, to, to understand very well how minoritized people experience society and experience power in the end. So for political scientists, it, it should be very important 
to to obtain that kind of knowledge and to work with it and also you know to discuss it with with the students so this is indeed what you would miss eh? if you would only hire uh, white men so to say which is in some in some departments the the case then then there is certainly some 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 types of knowledge that that you would miss but i think there's also another issue i think even with lots of traditional knowledge i mean i think a lot of minoritized people they do have the the great cvs uh, and great let's say sort of sort of mainstream traditional experience in academia even then you see that very often not be hired or miss opportunities and do you yourself ever think about how or why that might be? How do you think that this sort of discrimination comes into the hiring process? Yes, I do think about that. And I think it's uh, quite quite difficult and complex to understand. I think about it from the perspective of, you know, uh, a white male academic who has followed more or less the traditional parkour in academia and who has, you know, been responsible for hiring a lot of people at professorial level, actually mostly Flemish Western European. So why is that? I think our decolonization network has already helped to reflect on these uh, questions. And then there's, of course, research about the phenomenon of cloning. So I think from my experience, I can say that cloning is something that happens. What you want to do and what I have to be honest, also personally experienced, is that you like to have people around that you're familiar with, with whom you can already work, with whom you have worked, and in whom you recognize yourself. Academia is quite a competitive environment. It's a very individualized environment. It can be even a lonely environment. And if then you have the opportunity to hire people that you already know, that you're familiar with, that look a bit like you, that think a bit like you, maybe because you have trained them to some extent, for instance, because you have been their supervisor, then it becomes very easy to to unconsciously promote these people. Yeah. And would you say that you yourself make an effort in decolonizing these structures in this hiring process? Or even not just decolonizing, but do you yourself make conscious efforts to increase this diversity that you yourself think that is an asset for the university? Well, personally, I have tried a little bit to to do an effort in changing the gender balance in professorial corps and try to argue for hiring women, at least to some extent. And then this has been partially successful, even though you then realize it's still white women. And of course, again, great people, etc. But, you know, there's much more efforts that are needed to really decolonize the HR dimension of universities. And I think there's much more efforts to be done. Of course, within the diversity committee, for instance, we're thinking about that. Eh? We are also thinking about, yeah, you know, perhaps the need for a quota. We are thinking about other ways in which, in which a, a more colored university could be stimulated. But I'm afraid this is a very, yeah, this is quite a long-term agenda. Mm-hmm. Also because there are not so many vacancies at professorial level. Yeah? So at the level of PhD and postdoc, yes, I think I and also many of my colleagues have hired internationally, let's say. And you have come to quite a diverse composition of the staff at those levels. But then when it comes to the professorial level, what we see is that very often it would only be the... The Belgian Flemish guys who were promoted. Mm-hmm. 
And you said something about quotas. What is your opinion on establishing quotas? Do you think that it's an asset or do you think that it might have some kind of perverse effect on long term? Well, ideally we would not need quotas, but I have come to be convinced that they may indeed be necessary, that this is the only thing that will work. I think that this is also also what we are seeing on the electoral lists in, in for political, you know, for elections here in, in Belgium. The rules on board of governance of companies. I think in academia we will need something like that if you really want to change something. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the instrument is perfect, it can be quite blunt, I think. But the thing is, there is always, for every vacancy, so many excellent candidates. And it's an illusion to think we will pick the best, because there's a lot of bests. Mm -hmm. It depends, in the end, what you value. And then I think at that point we, we should perhaps be fair and say, okay, we take diversity explicitly as a, as a criterion, just to balance historically grown imbalances. Mm -hmm. And I asked you about the efforts you're making yourself to, to decolonize this hiring process or to increase diversity. But is there from the UGent, or I mean, that's the university that you're employed at, are there structures at play right now that really explicitly try to increase this diversity or really explicitly try to decolonize this hiring process, even at the, the, the doctoral level? And even not only at within academia level, within the full scope of the university, are there actual structural things at play? I can only speak from my experience as a simple professor in a, in a department. And I see that, of course, there are some committees on diversity being established. Mm -hmm. And there is an increasing awareness on, on, on the, the problematic here in Ghent. The question now, of course, is where that leads to. And maybe my biggest fear is that this increased awareness would lead to, I don't know, a simple counting of color and also a rebranding branding of, of colored people at university, which is what we already see also abroad and, 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 and maybe also inside that, you know, then we highlight this as big achievement, but that not necessarily underlying structures and underlying cultures at university are addressed. Mm -hmm. So have there been issues surrounding the diversity of staff within your department or within the university that have been voiced? Or is it something that's an underlying process? It's an issue that comes regularly on agendas of faculties and departments. I remember a few years ago we, we presented some data on the hiring process to the faculty board. That was quite sophisticated data on the number of people, women, people from diversity background who were hired, but also were invited mm -hmm. to the interview, where we could see that already at the level of invitations, there was not so many women, for instance, invited, mm -hmm. etc., etc. So, and then we had a discussion on that. And then the conclusion is that it's very complex and we need more research, but there's not really funding for research. But in the end, we already know, right, from many studies, we actually already know quite well. Although it's not my field of expertise, it's very easy to take the literature and catch up with the, the many different factors that explain why women and also racialized people, you know, don't easily reach the, the highest levels yeah. of the university. So, yes, we regularly do have these discussions and it would be hard to say that it has a short-term tangible impact. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that, do you, that you have enough discussions about this? Do you feel it might 
it should have been more or it should be more public? Do you think that should be like maybe a nationwide movement for decolonizing hiring processes? Well, or, actually, yeah. your, your question makes me think of another uh, episode in the context of Black Lives Matters. We had also one, one uh, researcher who wrote a letter to all the professors in the department about a very constructive letter about, you know, what are we now going to do? So the BLM was also a, a fruitful context for that kind of debate. So there is already, you know, a growing awareness. But okay, that comes and goes. What I see is that regularly it comes up and then it goes again. Of course, I would like to see this to be an eternal discussion. I also learn from it. Actually, if you study power as a political scientist, it's it's actually interesting. It's it's very often cynical too. But okay, this is how power works also within university. This is how privileges are made. So if you study the colonized nature of the hiring process at mm-hmm. universities, it's very interesting and of course very, very important to, to do that. And therefore, yes, I would like to see much more research on this, much more debate, much more discussions on this, because it tells us something, as, as Sarah Ahmed, I think, also writes in her uh, recent book, a complaint, it tells us something about institutions and universities. Mm-hmm. I have one um, concluding question, and that is, how do you see the future of diversity within academia regarding an an anti-colonial stance and and what hopes do you have Mm. for this future? Okay, that's a big question. Well, what, what I think is that the status quo is not an option, and I think that eventually we will have to realize it. If we don't realize it soon, we will be forced to realize the reality of diversity. You know, individuals often have a lot of power, maybe maybe too much power than is healthy. And even if you think you use the power well, and even if you think that you, you will sort of benevolently make use of the power that you have, it remains dangerous because there's so many biases that are playing. So, so in that pluriversity context, I think we should also address the issue of power. And, and this is also the essence of a decolonization agenda, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to have talked to you and thank you so much for, for explaining your position as a lecturer and as a professor within the university, as a white man, and thank you so much. You're welcome. So, in this conversation with Professor Orby, it was obvious that still a lot has to be done on the diversity of, of Kent University. But, you know, there have been talks and diversity is a hot topic within the university. Furthermore, we'll now have a conversation with Sami Zemni and more specifically about the department's conflicts and development. So, welcome on this podcast. First of all, I'd like to thank you for being here and being a guest on my podcast. And then I'll start with the first question. You know, you are the head of the Department of Conflict and Development. Do you see that there is a lot of uh, diversity within your department? Oh, well, uh, first of all, the pleasure is all mine, and thank you for having me. Concerning the diversity within my department, I think, you know, in general, if you would have a general overview, it's not that bad, because mm-hmm. obviously we're working on conflict and development studies, which means basically all, all things that have to do with the Global South. So we do have a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. However, it's also very clear that there is a typical bottleneck that is also visible, I think, in many other departments and and so on, in the sense that there is a lot of diversity at the the bottom tier of the hierarchy, so with the PhD students, but Mm -hmm. the further you go up, the less diversity there is. 
And of course, you see that in the first place with everything that has to do with the appointment of women mm -hmm. in the staff, especially on the level of what they call SAP in Dutch, so the tenured professorships. Mm -hmm. There is a very gradual and slow progress there. Mm -hmm. But in terms of color, in terms of ableism, and so on and so forth, we're still uh, lagging behind, I think, like many, many other departments at the university. And I think all in all, our department is not doing that bad, mm -hmm. but it's still not enough. You, s you mentioned that you might want more diversity. You see this uh, diversity really as an asset? Of course, and you know, as the head of the department, I'm I'm first and foremost thinking uh, about the department itself. So when you're doing studies on conflict and development studies, which is basically about political and social um, changes in the global south, then it's uh, only normal that there would be also a diversity that reflects a little bit the world we're living in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, alas, like I said, this is something that, of course, grew out of the past when we were a very small department within the faculty. And I would also say before really the incredible growth of mobility of students, of staff, of professors and researchers and so on, well, obviously, people looked around, mm -hmm. <laughs> and this was, of course, the, the people that they found here in Belgium, here in Flanders, and so they were the first, of course, to get in. Mm -hmm. But right now, we're, um, most of our work is in uh, the Global South, be it in uh, Central Africa, or in Asia, or in the Middle East. So we hope, of course, and we strive, of course, to have as many diversity as we can. Now, I have to say, on the level of the PhD students, we have indeed done a good job over the last mm -hmm. 10 years. We implemented plans to promote uh, scholarships for people from uh, the Global South. And it, it's sometimes difficult to know how many people exactly are busy doing a PhD mm -hmm. because there's a lot of different uh, forms and formats. Uh, some PhDs are funded, others are non-funded, still others have what they call sandwich scholarships. That means scholarships that are partly paid by Ghent University and partly paid mm -hmm. by the home university. But I, I think that we're now at 50% of non-Belgian PhD students. So that's actually um, a very high number, I think. And I'm quite sure that it's a very high number, especially for the faculty and, and mm -hmm. even beyond. Yeah, I've heard many people saying that they have less. Um, I mean, 50% uh, is, is quite a lot. But, you know, you've said that at a PhD level, it's all um, quite okay. And you also mentioned that there were movements that you really tried to attract these people from the global south and, and with you know, people with other backgrounds than just Belgian. But do you also see these movements at higher levels, mm -hmm. at professor levels? Um... A little bit less. First mm -hmm. of all, the postdoc level, there we also do see this tendency. Of course, with postdocs, it's a very competitive system to get a scholarship. So only the best, well, not <laughs> always the best because there are so many the best. Mm -hmm. So there, there is always better applications than the number of scholarships they have mm -hmm. to give to people. Now, there we see also a growing diversity in uh, terms of gender, mm -hmm. in terms of ethnic background, 
but still less so, for example, in terms of ableism and so on, even though that, yeah, it starts, at mm -hmm. least the attention to it. But then on a higher level, uh, professorships, the, it's much, much less, and not always because we do not want to. It's also a, a fact that when a professor wants to come to Ghent, this implies also a strong commitment of that potential professor because due to Belgian and Flemish laws, they need to learn Dutch. Mm -hmm. So when we have an application that is opened, there are people who contact us and ask us about these rules. And we do tell them that indeed it's part of their uh, so-called inburgeringstraject, so mm -hmm. that it's not only the university that is demanding it, but even Flanders as, as a community, as a region so that it is something that they need and have to do. So basically, they have three years to learn Dutch. And not all of them want to make that investment, which to a certain extent I understand because not all positions that are opening are for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. So they might think that if they would take a job for five years or seven years or whatever and then move on, then it's, it's a big investment to learn mm -hmm. Dutch in three years. And then, you know... It, it's also reflected in the number of candidacies that we have from the Global South in general. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. So, yeah, you've mentioned that this language is a, a barrier that people face, especially people from the Global South or with racialized backgrounds who are not, maybe have not grown up in Belgium mm -hmm. or have not grown up in Flanders. And, you know, they might face those barriers when trying to join the university's workforce. Besides this language, are there other, any other uh, barriers you might see? Well, I, I would say that um, I've been working at this university for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So I have seen a lot and I have seen it from the bottom of the ladder till, you know, mm -hmm. being a full professor. So I, I, I grew together with the faculty. And why am I saying that is that in all this time, I have never seen any open, overt, conscious discrimination for people that were coming from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the numbers, you know, these, these yeah. facts <laughs> and these numbers speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're facing a lot of unconscious and perhaps unwanted biases and structural discriminations. It took us a lot of time also to understand that even though our policies seemed neutral, mm -hmm. that they weren't neutral because women, for example, had much more difficulties in arriving at the highest level, being a tenured uh, position as professor. Mm -hmm. Now, it's the same thing with diversity. It took us way too long, perhaps, to understand that there must be something in the procedures, in the way we are perceived, in the way the, uh, the candidacies are asked for, in the way they are evaluated, that, you know, have as an end result that you end up still with the same white, middle class, mostly male type of professors. So I know that the university is trying to do uh, certain, you know, or to think about certain rules, uh, regulations, policies that could mitigate that. Mm -hmm. But it's not that easy. I don't want to hide behind it, but I do know that some are, are doing it. Is that affirmative uh, action, like in the United States, is something that is actually not accepted in Belgium. Not in law, not I think also in in 
in ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. So they do want to make the application as inclusive and as open as possible, but they won't say, well, this position, we're going to open it for people with a background in migration or a background in the global south or whatever. Just like you can't say, we need a man for this position. No, it's for M, V or X. Mm -hmm. they, they use that same logic to say, well, we're not going to ask for a position opening that is specifically geared towards a certain ethnic minority or someone with mm -hmm. a, a disability or whatever. So many people are reluctant to do that. So there is no easy way then mm -hmm. uh, of doing it. You can only tweak the applications, the evaluations, and, and try to do them as inclusive as possible. Okay. That's very interesting. About this affirmative action, are you a fan of that? Like, would you consider that as a solution for the problem? Oh, to be very honest, mm -hmm. the idea is attractive, mm -hmm. but it's not always perhaps as efficient than we might think. Mm -hmm. I would actually prefer some sort of middle uh, ground uh, position. Because when you talk about affirmative action, you mm -hmm. can say, for example, that at a certain point, when does affirmative action start, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, how they do it in other places, they say, for example, well, when in the department there's um, 90% male professors and 10% um, female professors, then the next professor needs definitely to be a woman. So you're going to uh, apply it like that. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that then you're coerced to do it. You're obliged to do it that way, right? Mm -hmm. I think in terms of management of departments or faculties, I think perhaps the level of faculty is the best, that there should be some leverage mm -hmm. that a faculty or department can decide and look for what kind of profile they need at a certain time. And of course, then I think it would be easier to say, well, now it's obvious we need someone with, uh, you know, bringing mm -hmm. in diversity or whatever. And then perhaps for another, for example, a postdoc position or uh, a teaching assistant, not. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, you could have uh, yeah, issues if you say, for example, you have to have some someone with, you know, ethnic uh, mm -hmm. diversity background for a teaching assistant. But as you know, in Belgium, the bachelors are still in Dutch. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult then to ask for someone who comes from abroad, doesn't really know the faculty or the program and doesn't speak Dutch and does need to make that incredible effort to learn the Dutch very quickly. But then, you know, there's so many, so much time that will go to that, mm -hmm. that the six years of assistantship to finish a PhD will be largely taken up by learning the language. So you see, it should be a more, I would say, precise policy that I would go for instead of having this one-all thing like, okay, now we go for affirmative action. Okay. So you've mentioned this process of, you know, trying to maybe, I might say, decolonize this process of, of hiring people and just trying to, you know, decolonize this workforce. But I have, I have to ask, how hard is it? Well, it's not the end of the world. I have mm -hmm. to say, for example, well, for PhDs, it's quite simple and we're already quite successful. We just, you know... Uh, sometimes people get in touch with us. And mm -hmm. when I say us, I mean one of the potential supervisors of the department. 
and then the supervisor starts a discussion, a dialogue to see whether that student is good enough to make a PhD, whether the theme fits the uh, research agenda of the supervisor, and so on and so forth. But on the level of the uh, postdocs, you can actually, you know, look for people. And when you're a little bit longer in academia, you have, of course, contacts abroad, you go to conferences, so you know people. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask them, hey, aren't you interested to apply for a scholarship in Ghent for a postdoc, for example? And this has been successful until now. So we're asking actually people, you know, from everywhere around the world. So you, you can do that. It's not the end of the world. And I think, you know, all the supervisors here are astute already at looking for, you know, good postdoctoral researchers and try to convince them to at least try to apply. And actually, we're, we're quite successful in it. Okay. And, you know, you've talked about, you know, people from this faculty asking others to join and, you know, going out of their way to find new people. But I have had other conversations about this topic and I've talked to other professors within this faculty and they mentioned that sometimes that also forms like a problem because you have a lot of white men at, at this point still within this faculty at high positions such as professors and they also go looking for people that they want to supervise and you know um, if you are a professor here you see these students grow up a lot of the students here are still white that's just a, a fact and you know you have a connection with these students and you know you have a connection with people that look like you and that that are like you and they also said like oh Sometimes I see it in myself and I see it with colleagues that something like mirroring happens, that you actively look for people that look like you. So my question to you is then, if you go with this system of, of personal networks, how do you, you counter this? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, it, it, it shouldn't remain as outspoken as it is, but mm -hmm. I'm not really sure whether it should be countered. I think it's still mm -hmm. a good thing that, you know, professors find good students mm -hmm. in their programs because these then are the students who have the biggest chance to get a scholarship. Mm -hmm. Now, it's about the mindset and a policy that a department can enhance by saying, look, we have always good students in our own program, but it's also our task to look beyond because whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, and this is not the university's fault, or at least um, not not for a big part, for the biggest mm -hmm. part, that our bachelor programs are still mostly white middle class uh, Flemish people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there is an issue there. And university tried, and I, I've been involved actually also mm -hmm. in in these things. It's so hard for Ghent University, for example, to reflect the reality of Ghent City. Mm -hmm. There should be normally much more, you know, diversity in our classrooms, and it still isn't, mm -hmm. or isn't enough. Yeah? So that is a problem, but that not only the university can, can find a solution to, because mm -hmm. it has also to do in part with our secondary school system, and so on and so forth. Now, like I said, here in our department, we still have 
professors who, because they teach in um, the bachelor's or even in the master program, which is already in terms of students, the master conflict and development studies, more diverse than mm -hmm. the rest because it's an English language master. Yeah, that we, that we are struck by, you know, a very good student. I don't think that's a problem that then there's um, mm -hmm. a possible, you know, cooperation and, and working towards a, a PhD that starts with that. And, but this does not inhibit the fact that we can also look beyond and indeed answer the emails because we all get these emails from people who want to do PhDs here. Sometimes we, we even, you know, are surprised how they found <laughs> us and, and why and so on and so forth. Many of these emails remain without consequence. But there are some that are really, yeah, you know, collaborations that then, you know, become real. There's many PhD students here, actually, who started with that, who have no background in this university, no background in the program and so on. So it's a mindset. And of course, I think a head of department and when you're in the department meeting, you can actually, you know, enhance that uh, mentality and, and, you know, even have a policy around it without necessarily making it all official or mm -hmm. written down in rules and regulations. But it's something that we learned to do also, you know, along. And that means, you know, just listening to other incoming voices, basically. Okay. Okay, so you've mentioned the the recruitment process. You you've you've mentioned the personal networks and and PhD students and and you know the the faculty level. But what can the 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 university itself do to make this recruitment process more fair, or you know to take into account these often disadvantaged positions of 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 students with a minority background. Mm -hmm. Well, I, there's very little positions that the university divides itself, right? Mm -hmm. I have been a research director of the faculty for seven years, and in that position I was part of the research council. Mm -hmm. And the research council every two years has six, what they call BOFSAP, so research professors, professorships. Mm -hmm. And there too, when I arrived, they already had realized it's always men. <laughs> what do we do with that? So they started to implement a system in which they wanted at least two women. So, you know, 4-2 was acceptable, 5-1 not, 3-4 was even better, or 3-3 mm -hmm. uh, so three, three was even better, of course. Eh? So I think they can also do that with, 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 you know, other variables of diversity, is to say, well, you know, everybody can apply because it's difficult to close it off. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it's one application. So they say, this is the application, and we're going to select six people. But then in the selection, I do think you could say that, well, at least the position should be filled in by someone with this background and with this and, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So that is a possibility. But like I said before, there are a lot of people who are reluctant to do that because then they say, well, if we make a ranking... We make a ranking based of we of who we think is the best, and then you know downwards. But then that it would possibly mean that at a certain point, if you would have let's say position one to six men, and a position seven uh, a woman, that you would take position seven and move it up to the fifth place, for example. And there are people who are against it. Mm -hmm. Now, 
What is important already and why is it changing is also the recruitment procedures. Uh, a good thing about this university, it's not ideal, but every commission, mm -hmm. be it a faculty board, the department, or any commission that is made centrally, cannot have more than two-thirds of one gender. Right? So this means, and especially for these positions that I was mm -hmm. talking to, that was 50-50. So it was 50% of the evaluators were also women, for example. Mm -hmm. This impacted already in the outcome. Because when it was only men evaluating, they tended to choose men. Mm -hmm. And again, I've never felt or saw something openly like we want men. Nobody <laughs> would say that. Yeah. But the facts were there. So finally they realized, okay, let's bring in women then. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's, it's, it, now it's much better because there are more and more women at the university. But I remember a time that there were more, much little women. So every time a commission needed to be made, it were the same women who had yeah. to do that, adding more and more work to them. So it's an incredible investment of time that is, that is you know, part of that uh, process. Mm -hmm. And would you recommend then maybe also including people with ethnic backgrounds in these commissions? Of course, and I, I would say make it as diverse as possible. And the problem is, of course, because there's not so much diversity. Mm -hmm. For example, the, the, the rule of two-thirds, uh, so that one gender, one-third, and the other two-thirds, they only did that because they couldn't do the 50-50 rule, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But that will change because it is changing already. So at a certain point, they will say 50-50. Now, then it's also not difficult to say in each commission, you know, try to be inclusive and think about it. How you exactly do that is not always easy because what is diversity? Mm -hmm. For example, me, what am I? Hmm? So I'm Sami Zemni. My mm -hmm. name doesn't really sound really Flemish Flemish, right? Yeah. Okay. So yes, I'm, I think the first professor with a migrant background that was appointed. But... I was born here and raised here, went to school here, went to university here. <laughs> If they use me, it would be a little bit weird to, you know, tick the box and say we have the diversity because look at the name or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So you see the, the point that I'm getting at? Um, so where are people from at the end, right? Mm -hmm. There's people here with, with also backgrounds in the Global South, but when you look at it, they have spent most of their grown-up life abroad because they were always studying in this university and that university and doing research here and research there. So it's, it's very difficult to box people and a lot mm -hmm. of people actually don't like it, right? Yeah, yeah. I get that. So <laughs> I would say a mentality of inclusiveness is more important than the simple, you know, box ticking, okay, we have a name from abroad and we have some color and we mm -hmm. have a woman and, and this and that. That... That would make it too easy, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I've also heard that from um, other speakers and other mm -hmm. people that I've had conversations with about this subject. So maybe um, a bit more, more sensitive question, but have there ever been any issues surrounding the lack of maybe a diversity of, of staff within this university? Oh, 
I don't know if that is it's a sensitive question. I do not, <laughs> well, I can't speak for the whole university, of course, but, you know, at least the last 15 to even 20 years, there is this concern, there is this consciousness that we have to do something about it. And I'm quite sure that a lot of people think it's not going fast enough, it's not going deep enough. But, yeah, any major issues? No. I mean, I have never met anyone who said I'm against it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're a more radical thinker, you might think that those people who don't say that they're against it, but actually don't do a lot about it, that they're, you know, huh? mm -hmm. unconsciously, at least unconsciously, uh, in, uh, against it. Mm -hmm. I don't really invest myself in these negative feelings because, <laughs> you know, they go nowhere. Mm -hmm. It's within departments that you feel that this concern is more or less. And it's true when I, when I look at the faculty that I know best, my faculty, it's true that people from political science uh, and sociology and yeah, com communication. But because these departments of sociology and, and political science are much wider, they tend also to have less these discussions because it's not really an issue, right? Or mm -hmm. not big enough an issue or not brought up a lot. While here in our department, yeah. I can assure you, every every department meeting, there is something about that. I mean, because we're so, well, you know, again, with the bias <laughs> of the hierarchy and so on, but it's much more diverse already. Mm -hmm. So there's a constant attention to it and to issues of that. So for example, they were very surprised in the political science department to hear that we never speak Dutch anymore. All our meetings are in English. Well, obviously, if 50% of your staff is non-Dutch speaking, what are you going to do? Invite them to a meeting that they don't understand? <laughs> it's useless, right? Mm -hmm. So even our documents are always in English. A small little example. Up until two years ago, and it still happens, but very little, we always got these emails from the administration only in Dutch. And, yeah. you know, we pushed and pushed and pushed, and now it's always translated and you get this English below. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in the beginning, the first problem was is that these people from the administration were not trained to write uh, good English emails yeah. or letters. So they were afraid to begin with. So mm -hmm. you have to work with them to give them the confidence and the knowledge so they can translate it. In the meantime, we all, you know, discover Deeple and, you know, <laughs> yeah. Google Translate. That can help you already a lot. <laughs> the second point was that from the central offices, they thought mm -hmm. that, well, but if people come to Belgium, they have to learn Dutch anyway, so they can understand an email. Well, it's not the case for PhDs and postdocs with a short stay, they don't have to do that. And quite frankly, if you're living in Brussels, like most of the people do, you don't need the Dutch for the three years that you're going to be here. Mm -hmm. So what I told them, so what are you going to do with these people? They don't have to learn Dutch. And they might learn, you know, survival Dutch so they can buy stuff in the shop or go to a museum or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you have an official mail with information that is important, you know, just mm -hmm. translate it. Yeah, even for the students, I mean, if you if you have English um, in well, English courses um, course. like conflict and development, which is uh, yeah. taught in English, 
you know, some of these students have international backgrounds of and they, they might also not, you know, understand these emails. Yeah. I, no, I yeah, and it's a question of, you know, a learning curve, mm -hmm. right? I mean, again, for example, in the administration, I never felt that people were against writing emails in English, right? Mm -hmm. It is something that they didn't think of until it was, you know, told to them. And then, of course, you work with them to, mm -hmm. to make it, you know, a normal thing, a normal procedure. Yeah, so, yeah, we've talked about a lot of things and it was very interesting. To maybe conclude this conversation, I would like to ask you, you know, maybe for colleagues, other professors, you know, other universities that might be inspired by this podcast, what good advice can you maybe give them? Whew, what kind of advice? Well, you know, I, I know it sounds like um, a very old cliche that diversity is richness and so on and so forth. But, you know, a cliche exists because it has some truth in it. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, if you diversify, you're going to enrich your working environment, your department, your research group. But I actually want to stress another consequence of it is that you enrich your own personal experience in life because diversity by definition opens your eyes to things that you didn't see before because you know just like we were not seeing the fact that male professors were always selected for a long time it's the same thing with with other forms of diversity and you tend to learn then much more and much faster about the world, about also changing patterns of interaction across the globe that otherwise would remain, I would say, hidden somehow because you're not in touch with this reality. And that is why I think it's so important. Yeah. And how would you feel that we might get there? Well, how do we get there? <laughs> I think there's a lot of goodwill, like I said, and there's a lot of general directions that the university follows and the faculty also follows. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing, but we should act upon them. So not only in terms of diversity, but also, for example, in terms of general well-being of staff and students and so on and so forth. There's a lot that has been done. There's all kinds of charters, for example, that have been approved. There's well-being plans and so on. But the danger remains that these remain just, you know, papers that we agreed upon on the faculty board and then just filed because we needed to do that according to one or other rule or regulation of the university. The point is to take these things as a stepping stone to act upon them within the research groups, within the departments. We tend to have certain uh, rules and regulations that are quite open, but in reality we don't see them implemented. And it's that mismatch that we now have to work on uh, the most. Okay. Thank you so much for answering my questions and, and being on this podcast. It was very interesting. Thank you very much for having me. In conclusion, in this episode, we heard what Professor Jan Orbi and Sami Zemni's views are on the topic of decolonization of the workforce. We heard both professors talk about how they strive to find the best of the best, but oftentimes the best still remains the most privileged.
Furthermore, I would like to reflect on the fact that both professors really focused on internationalization as a means of diversity. I would argue that Belgian diversity also lacks within the university. Of course, it's hard to find people internationally that are willing to learn Dutch in a short notice, but there are also a lot of Dutch-speaking academics with an ethnic background here in Belgium. And in my opinion, these are also people that are unrepresented in the academic staff. In my experience at Ghent University, I did not have any professors with a different ethnic background. In addition, I only have one female professor. I can just conclude that it was very interesting to hear the perspective of these professors, and I would like to thank them again to be willing to talk to me about this subject.